I'm not sure if we were supposed to be singing, but I hope I didn't distract Tim too much. Danny and I were going to, down, to town down here singing that song. I love it. There's maybe not a more delightful truth. My sins are many, but his mercy is more. Oh, man. Well, we uh, thank you to Pastor Marcel for preaching last week and then uh, jumping into the van and taking the, the teenagers uh, down to Louisville for the conference. Uh, I know it was a good time there. Um, but before that, we spent the last month or so studying Genesis chapter 3. Um, and you can open up there, uh, actually, to Genesis 4 this morning. But in Genesis chapter 3, we, we looked at and we studied the fall of mankind into sin. And at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are expelled. Uh, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And they head out into a hard and a hostile world. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for them to leave the Garden of Eden and to head out into that hard and hostile world. It, it must have been something like landing on an alien planet and walking out of the spaceship for the first time, or what I imagine that to be like. As they made their way out into this new world, though, they weren't alone. And unfortunately for them, they were carrying a companion with them, and that companion would be sin. And so they carry this companion of sin out into the world in their hearts, and that companion will be with them for the rest of their lives, and that companion will try to dominate them. But as you think about that transition from Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden out into the world in Genesis chapter 4, it may surprise you to know that that word sin is not actually used in Genesis 3. It's not anywhere in Genesis 3. In fact, that word sin does not come until Genesis chapter 4. And that word sin is used in Genesis chapter 4 in verses 6 and 7 when God is speaking to Cain. Of course, sin is what caused the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, but it's not used. That word is not used for the first time until Genesis 4. Look at verse 6 with me. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. This is the first naming of this enemy that has caused all the disruption, has caused the exile from the garden, and that will be with Adam and Eve for the rest of their lives. So what is sin? Well, this word here means to miss the mark, to come up short, to wrong or offend someone. And after God names what has been going on here and what Cain is being tempted to do, I think his next few words to Cain are very instructive for us. I think in these next few words, with the first use of the word sin, and then with what God says next, I think he defines the relationship between human beings and sin. Look at these next few words. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What God says to Cain is, is that, Sin is like an animal, and it's crouching in attack position, and it's ready to spring at you and tear you to pieces. 
And then God tells Cain, you must be prepared for that attack and you must overpower sin. Sin caused Adam and Eve to be expelled from the garden. And sin, like a wild animal, will use every ounce of its strength to ensure that human beings are destroyed. That's the relationship. Sin is not a tameable pet. This is a fight for survival. And this sets the stage for that. I don't know if you heard this story, but in February of this year, in Colorado, there was a 31-year-old man named Travis Kaufman who was out on a trail run uh, near Fort Collins in Colorado. He was alone, and he was running along, and he heard a rustle in the pine needles behind him. We turned around to see what it was, and there was a young mountain lion behind him about 10 feet away that had apparently been stalking him. And he knew what to do in this situation, so he put his arms up above his head to make himself appear bigger, and he screamed and tried to intimidate the lion, but the lion was having none of it. It wouldn't back down. Instead, it lunged at his face, and as he tried to protect himself, he raised his left arm to block it, and it latched onto his left arm, onto his wrist, started chewing on his wrist, and started scratching and clawing at his face and his body. Now, Kaufman, Travis, weighs about 150 pounds, and if you've seen a video of him, like I did, he's a slight fellow, not a very big and muscular guy. The mountain lion weighs about 50 pounds. It's a pretty sizable animal there. So as the lion is latched onto his wrist, he said he tried to throw it off of him, but what happened is that they both ended up tumbling down a slope and ending up at the bottom of a slope in a wrestling match. And at this point, he said he tried anything he could think of. The lion is latched onto him. It's scratching him. It's clawing him. And he tried to grab sticks and stab it. He even tried to grab a pretty big rock and smash it on the head to get it to let go. And it would not let go of him. And so he says at this point, he realized that there were really only two ways that this was going to end. Either he was going to kill the lion or he was going to end up dead with a lion gnawing on him in this ravine. Either he would survive or the lion would. And so at this point, he managed to get on top of it and to pin its legs down. And finally, he got one of his legs, one of his feet, onto the animal's neck, and he pressed down with all of his might and ended up strangling and suffocating the lion. It's really an amazing story. And I don't know how to say this any clearer, but this is exactly how the Bible describes our relationship to sin. We do not negotiate with sin. We do not pamper it and feed it. We do not coexist with it. Sin is not a fluffy and cute baby bunny. It's a ravenous, psychotic mountain lion that will stop at nothing to gnaw your face off. That's precisely why the Puritan writer John Owen said this about sin. He asked this question of every person who claims to be a believer. Do you mortify? And that means to kill. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it, this work of mortification while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. There are only two options in this struggle. 
And so what I want to do here, because of the seriousness of this, is I want to help us know how to engage the fight. What do we do? If it's this serious, if sin is this life-threatening, then how do we find the strength to fight it? Well, we find it through the ability that God provides and by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so over the next few weeks, I want to take this fight very seriously. We're going to do a series called Fight for Your Life, Battling Sin by God's Grace. And so this is going to unfold over the next few weeks, maybe even over the next month or two throughout the summer. But this, this series is going to come in three parts. We're going to start, think of these three parts as three concentric circles. And we're going to start in the center circle, and then we're going to sort of work our way out from there. These three circles are going to be areas in which I want to help us understand how we utilize these particular areas to fight against sin. Because this is a life or death struggle. Fight for your life. So the first one of these is the center circle. And this is your personal fight against sin. This is the individual way in which you go about fighting sin in your life. What do you and I need to do individually to engage this fight and to prepare for this fight? How do we do it? And then the second one of these circles is the relational fight. This doesn't mean fighting against other people. It means how can we help one another in this fight? I mean, think about that story I just told you. If Travis would have had a partner running with him, how much easier would it have been to kill that mountain lion, to scare it off? It's vital that we help one another in this fight. You're not just doing this on your own, or at least you shouldn't be. We need to help and engage one another. But beyond that, there's a third area in which we need to fight sin, and that's communal. As the church, when I talk about the community, I'm talking about the church body here. This is the church as a whole. And it may surprise you to know that God gives us very specific instructions in how to handle sin within the body. What do we do when there's a brother or sister who persistently sins and engages in a lifestyle that is opposed to God's word? How do we handle that? Well, we want to help them. If sin is really a mountain lion who's trying to destroy us, we don't want to just let someone go and say, well, it's their decision. So what do we do with that? Well, the Bible very graciously gives us instructions in how to handle this as a church body. And as a church body, we ignore those instructions to our own detriment. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. But I want to begin this morning with this personal fight against sin. I want to try to help you at the individual level and help me too to be ready and to be prepared and to engage this fight. What weapons do we utilize to combat this enemy who wants to destroy us in every single way? So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to offer you four strategies to fight sin personally. That center circle there, four strategies to fight sin personally. And this is the only one we're going to cover this week, to be who you are. Now, that's going to take a little bit of unpacking here, and we'll get to Romans 6 in a few minutes here. But here's what I mean to summarize when I say be who you are. What I mean by that is you and I, as you are a believer in Christ— You and I are to live suitable or comparable to our new life in Christ. If there has been a change in your life, then you are to 
appropriate that change. That change from death to life, as we'll see in Romans 6, should inform your identity. It should inform your purpose. It should change your desires and your affections. Basically, if that change has happened, then you need to consider that change and live in light of that change. That's what we're saying here. But obviously, to be who you are, to live suitable to new life in Christ, requires new life in Christ. You, you can't fight sin in any way without new life in Christ. And this is so because of all that we've said about sin over the last month or so. I just want to be clear with you this morning. Sin has dramatically affected the human condition. It has fundamentally altered how we come into this world. And it's not just that human beings occasionally make a bad decision or occasionally break God's law or occasionally decide to sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, every human heart changed. Our hearts were plunged into corruption and they flow over like a fountain in corruption. And our problem now is that we are born with immoral and broken hearts. They're crooked. And those crooked hearts are like a saw that is bent. The blade is bent. You can try to make a straight cut with a bent saw blade, but it won't ever come out right. You can't get it quite right, and it won't work. And that's the reality of the human condition now. Our evil hearts overflow with sinful thoughts, with sinful thought patterns. It's not just that a, a sinful thought occasionally pops up into our head. It's that the entire way we perceive the world has been shaped and changed by sin. Our attitudes are off. Our desires are toward the wrong things. Our longings for what we think makes up the good life and what we want are skewed. And ultimately, because of all of that internal turmoil and brokenness, our actions are in rebellion against God. It is not a pretty situation. We sin because we are sinners. Our actions and our thoughts flow out of who we are on the inside. The spring flows with bitter water. Jeremiah 17.9 says it very clearly. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't even know the depths of how broken our hearts are. The Bible explains this using a number of images, doesn't it? We are dead in our sin. We are enslaved to sin. To go back to our analogy of the fight against the mountain lion, there is no fight because our arms and our legs are chained down to a gurney. And we are laying there, unable to resist sin in our natural state. We have no ability to fight. We're dead, spiritually speaking. And it's because of our enslavement to sin, it's because we've been chained down and we have no ability to fight or overcome sin that we need to be set free. If we're dead in our sin, we need to be made alive. We need new life. And that change, that freedom, is exactly what happens at the moment of salvation. We are 
born again. We are cleansed. We are set free. Our hearts are given new life so that now there is actually a fight going on. Now we can resist. The lights in the dark room are turned on. And now we can see our enemy. We know he's there. And we can fight. Being born again is a change in direction. It's a fundamental reorientation of everything about us. It is dramatic. It is significant. And it happens only by the work of God in us. It happens when God's Holy Spirit brings us to a knowledge of how bad our sin is, how corrupt our hearts are, and we're convicted of that, and we say, I don't want my sin anymore. I turn from my sin, I repent, and as I'm turning from my sin, I turn in faith to the only one who can atone for my sin and pay the penalty for my sin, and I turn to Jesus Christ from sin to him, and I say, I need you, Lord Jesus. I don't want my sin anymore. We cry out to him in faith, and we are made alive in that moment. And when we're made alive in that moment, now the fight begins. Now your arms are free and your legs are free, and now you can do, do battle. Dead men don't fight. Those who are enslaved simply obey. But here's the point of this first strategy. Be who you are. When we are born again, we must and we will act like it. A change that dramatic will result in new actions and new ways of thinking. When sin is dominating us and trying to destroy us and all of a sudden our arms and our legs are free, you will fight back against it. Be who you are. We don't continue to act like we're chained down when we're set free. Of course, when we're set free, sin doesn't immediately disappear. It's still there. Your desires don't automatically and instantly change in every possible way. We're objectively declared righteous. You're given new life in Christ. Your arms and legs are set free. You can fight now. You're made alive. Sin is dethroned, but it's not eliminated. That's why the Bible talks about indwelling sin. It's, it's why the scriptures talk about the old man. It's old in the sense that it used to characterize who we are, but it doesn't anymore, but it's still there. And it's still pursuing guerrilla warfare against us. It doesn't hold the castle anymore, but it's still trying to pick off the soldiers and trying to influence how we live. But now we are able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to engage the fight. We are able to be who we are. That's the first strategy here. And I think this first strategy is so clearly taught in Romans chapter 6. So I want you to open up there this morning. And that's where we're going to be for the rest of our time together. Romans 6. I think in this chapter, Paul teaches us how to go about this battle with sin and how to go about it as believers in Christ. And that's the key. It has to start there. So before Romans 6, in Romans chapter 5, if you're, if you're familiar with that passage, Paul has very clearly taught 
that salvation, that change that I've just described being made alive, happens by grace. It's not according to our works. It's not according to anything good we've done. It's not according to our ability. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ overcoming our sin. And we've been given new life. Listen to chapter 5 and verse 15. And he's contrasting this new life with the sin that we received because of Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, being declared righteous, objectively changing new life, justification and life for all men. So he's teaching here that it is by grace that you are saved. It is not by your works. And so some people may hear that. They may hear Paul saying that it's by grace. And they may respond to that teaching and say, well, if it's not by my works, if it's not by anything I do, then sweet. If I'm saved by grace, then I'm just going to go on and keep sinning. Because sin's kind of fun and I kind of like it and it's exciting. And so grace will keep covering it. This is a sweet setup for me. I'll keep getting forgiven and it'll magnify God's grace. And and this is awesome. If grace is not dependent on my works, then I can do whatever I want. And Paul preaches grace so freely that he knows that some people are going to twist it and take it that way. And so he addresses that way of thinking in chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the exact question I've just asked. Are we going to keep sinning? so that grace can be magnified and so that we'll keep receiving grace. And he answers that rather definitively in 6.2. By no means. He's emphatic here. And when he says by no means, what Paul is saying is, if you really believe you can continue in sin and enjoy sin after receiving this change of life, then you really don't understand the gospel. And you've never really encountered God's grace in your life. And you really don't know what happens at the moment of conversion. You don't even recognize that your arms have been freed and now you can engage the fight. And he begins to explain that in chapter 6 and verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And what he's saying here is someone who has died to something that thing no longer has power or authority over them. They've they've died to it. It no longer holds dominion or ruling power over them. It no longer owns them because they've died to it. So what Paul's saying here is that the grace of Christ in salvation brings about a decisive break with the ruling power of sin. You have died to sin. It completely transforms your status. We're no longer owned by sin, but rather than being owned by sin, now we are united with Jesus Christ. And it's because of that union with him that we have died to sin. And the counterpoint to that that he'll explain is now we are alive 
we're under the dominion of someone else. Now we serve someone different and we don't serve sin. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, and he's, he's not talking about water baptism here, he's talking about union with Christ, being immersed in Christ, covered in Christ, who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, by union into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we've died with him to sin. It no longer has dominion over us. It no longer controls us. But we've also been raised to walk in newness of life. Now we're different. We've been changed. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This death and resurrection has brought freedom from sin and new life in Christ. And that new life, by definition, is not enslaved to sin anymore. Fundamentally, a change has happened. And he goes on to explore this in verse 6. We know that our old self, right, that old body of sin, our old self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The whole purpose of our salvation is that we would grow away from sin and that sin would be put to death so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul's like, listen, this mentality that you can just continue to cultivate and pamper sin after you've been saved, it's completely the opposite of what God intends for your salvation. You don't understand it. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You can see how much he's stressing the, the rulership, the ownership, the dominion here. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So there's been a fundamental change in who we are. We're no longer under the dominion of sin and believers cannot continue to pursue sin and live under the dominion of sin because that's no longer who we are in Christ. So at this point, Maybe you're thinking, okay, that sounds great, but I still seem to sin an awful lot in my life. I struggle. It's still there. I'm wrestling with this thing, this lion, every single day of the week, as soon as I wake up in the morning. So Paul, this, is, this sounds objectively good, right? Like there's a, there's a break here. I'm a new person. I'm different now. Sin no longer has dominion over me. So Paul, what do I do? How do, I, how do I live this out? How do I appropriate this in my life? How can my life be less and less sinful? What do I do to fight? And that's where Paul starts to get really practical in verse 11. He set up the reality of our salvation and the change, the union with Christ. And now in verse 11, he starts to tell us, listen, this is how you become who you are. This is how you live this out in your life. Look at verse 11. So, 
You can like hear Paul changing here, right? So because of all this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's what we do. And the heart of this is to consider. This word consider, it means to reckon something to be true. To reckon something to be true as a result of careful calculation. So, this is like looking at your monthly budget, all right? Looking at your monthly budget and carefully calculating what you have spent and what's coming in and determining that you have $100 left over. And then, because of that careful calculation, you make a trip to Target with cash in pocket because you can never spend less than $100 at Target when you go. And so you go, you look at the facts, you have the money, it's there, you've made a calculation, and now, because of that calculation, it's very natural for you to act on that reality and to use that money. So what are we to do? What's he saying here? We are to consider, we are to look at the facts, we are to look at the promises of God, the words of Scripture, and we are to calculate and reckon that I am no longer dead in sin, I'm no longer under the sway of sin, but now I have been freed and I am alive to live in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a calculation that we must make. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of perceiving ourselves. It's a way of understanding what has been wrought in us by the gospel. And you're like, will that really change how I act if I do that? And here's here's where I think the the rubber meets the road. You use a great cliche there, right? It's a car cliche, so it's perfect for us. Here's our problem. We read this and we're like, that doesn't sound like it's going to work. And it doesn't sound like it's going to work because we really don't know the gospel that well. We really don't know what has happened at the moment of conversion. We don't know the change that has been wrought in us. And I think that's why Paul in this passage over and over again says we know. Verse 3, do you not know? Verse 6, we know. Verse 9, we know. He wants a change in the way we perceive ourselves and perceive the world. And this change won't happen if we can't explain and don't think about what the Bible means when it says we are justified, when we are elected by God, when we are reconciled to God, when we're born again, when we're united to Christ, when we have received an inheritance. What is that inheritance? If you don't know, you're not carefully calculating that you've been moved from death to life. And if you're not carefully calculating, then you're going to continue to live under the sway and the power and the dominion of sin. But when you do know, when you make this calculation, when you begin to uncover the riches of the gospel in our lives and the change that has been made, then you start to look like verse 12. This is what happens. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. When you know what has happened and the change has been wrought, you go, sin, this is not going to happen. 
Like, that, like Travis in that ravine. I am not going down like this. This is not going to happen this way. As the Holy Spirit empowers me, I will fight because I know what has happened in my life and I know the change that has been wrought. We will be who we are. And then practically, this is what it looks like. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And then here's, I think, maybe the key in the whole thing. But here's what you're to do. Present yourselves to God as those. So he's going to tell us this is how you need to understand yourself. This is the perspective you need to have on your new life in Christ. As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We are to present ourselves to God. We are to understand ourselves in three ways here in the middle of verse 13. First of all, we are to understand, understand ourselves as those who have been brought. We didn't accomplish this movement on our own, did we? You did not decide one day on your own, apart from God's work, that you were going to become alive spiritually. You were brought. You were brought from death to life. God did the work in us. It originates with him, and his goal for us is that we would walk in holiness. Now, being brought to this is fundamentally a description of grace, isn't this? I mean, a dead man does not give life to himself. A dead man is brought to life. We do not bring ourselves into a relationship with God. Grace fundamentally reorients our hearts to God. It starts with him. It is an act of grace. And to to have this change happen in our hearts and lives, to put sin to death, we have to understand the grace that has been given to us. We have to understand that God in his mercy and kindness has given us life and has brought us to new life in him. And when you and I grasp grace, when we know that it starts with God and ends with him, then it fundamentally changes us. And now we don't want sin anymore. We know sin doesn't have dominion over us and we want to kill it because it's an offense to this grace that we've received. Titus 2 makes this very clear, except that I didn't. There it is. The grace of God has appeared. Grace of God bringing salvation for all people. And here's what it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is what it does. So we have to think of ourselves and present ourselves to God as those who have been brought, who have received grace. But there's a second part to this. We have been bought, brought from death. From death. So to be motivated to fight sin, we have to understand where we were. We have to understand how bad things were before Christ. We have to understand how serious sin is. We were dead. We were enslaved. We had no hope. 
We have to understand the dreadful nature of sin and what sin wants to do to us. It wants to dominate us and destroy us. And I, I just, in my own life, I don't, we don't actively fight sin, I think, because we so often just don't think it's that big of a deal. We just don't think it's that big of a deal. It's really not that harmful. It's no big deal. God will just forgive it and I'll move on with my life. And we don't understand the dramatic change from death, enslavement to life. And we're not thankful to God because of that. We don't think it's a big deal. It's like the guy who has brain surgery doesn't after brain surgery to remove a cancerous tumor. He doesn't look at the surgeon and go, well, that was no big deal. I could have done that myself. That's how we treat sin. Well, it's not that big of a deal. I can manage this. I can take care of this. Instead, the guy who's received brain surgery and had cancer removed from his head couldn't be more appreciative of the doctor and thankful that that work was done to him and a significant threat to his life was removed. So we have to understand ourselves as those who have been brought from death. And then lastly, the third part of this is we've been brought from death to life. We've been brought to life. The movement from death to life is profound. And here's where we have to explore the depths of the gospel and understand the benefits that we have received when this change happens to us. And when that happens... The end of verse 13, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness out of gratitude and thankfulness and joy, I now present my body and my thinking and my emotions and all that I am to him as an instrument for righteousness. And verse 14, why? Because for sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Because you've received grace, sin will not have dominion over you, and you must present yourself to God. Present your members as instruments of righteousness. Be who you are in Christ. If you had a friend who'd been in prison for five years and who'd gotten out of prison and had gone home and been reunited with his family and enjoyed a good meal with his family and started to enter back into regular life, what would you think of that friend if they went back to the prison after one week of being home, knocked on the door and wanted their old bunk back and to start eating prison food again and to re-engage with life in the prison. Well, that's insane. That wouldn't make sense at all. And I think that's exactly the picture that Paul is giving here. There's been a fundamental change, so be who you are understand and appropriate what has happened to you and begin to live it out out of gratitude for the grace that you and I have been shown. Fight sin by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty matters for us. We are, we are tempted to sin so often. Our, our thinking is off. We want the wrong things, but But Lord, I pray that you would just help us to see the glory of the work that has been done and help us to live that out in our lives. Help us to consider ourselves 
dead to sin and alive to you in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the folks here. I pray for each one in this room. I pray that we would all take careful account of how we are fighting sin and whether we're doing it in our own strength or whether we're doing it motivated by grace that you have shown to us. We ask this morning that you would change us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ and that we would be who we are in him. Thank you for what you're going to do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.